Good morning. Okay, so we've been in Ephesians chapter four. We're going there again today. Uh, wait a minute, I think it's time for an offering. So let me, did you mention the offering? I spaced it. All right, never mind. Let's go to Ephesians four. She's talking to you and I'm in my own head, talking to myself. She says that's her whole life. That's her whole life. And it's been a long time that way. So the Ephesians passage now speaks to us about the urgency of growing up. Uh, And it's going to talk to us about maturity and and how to attain it. And we're going to start back where we were. I'm going to try to uh, press myself to get through the first part uh, because I want to labor the last part a little bit more than I did last night. Again, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1, Therefore, uh, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Never in my life has there been a time when the unity of the Spirit is more challenged than it is right now today. Never in my life have I been in a time where just simple unity was challenged more than it is today. Never have I seen a time like this where even agreeing on linguistic categories is, uh, is difficult. If you, and probably I'm too much of an egghead. I read too many things and go after too many things, but uh, definitions of many words are, are very mobile right now. And understandings of categories is very different. Uh, I've said for a long time that whoever in a discussion controls the categories of the discussion will win the discussion. This uh, goes back most vividly in our culture to the language of pro-life and pro-choice. Those linguistic categories concerning uh, the termination of pregnancies uh, have illustrated for us that if you can if you can win the category you have it and uh, that that's been unfolding for a long time but uh, this this kind of issue has always been present but it especially goes back to the 1960s and and its generation in uh, in French philosophy and we we are experiencing how that's working out now one of the things that you, you should understand is that the thinkers of today are controlling the narratives of the next generation. The thinkers of today are actually controlling the narrative way people see life in the next generation. This will always be true. And this is why uh, people who are very patient with uh, sowing their, their truth into a generation, they, if they're patient, they know in the long run they'll win. We've, we were seeing this uh, a generation ago, uh, and I'm speaking in the terms of like 40 years. Uh, we were being warned, don't lose education, don't lose education, don't lose education. Education has been very, very strongly affected and in many ways taken over by thought forms that are very anti-Christian. This is just the truth. This has happened. And, uh, and the reality is that uh, now when I say stuff like that, it's difficult because people get all stressed out because there's a lot of people that are in the system. You can be in the system and the system is still messed up. As we all know, because we've all, we've all done stuff like that, whether we know it or not, it's, we're being made to look at it. Anyway, I'm going to get bogged down. There's one, here it is. Maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. One body, one spirit. You were called in the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is an illustration of what I'm telling you about. Paul is one of the few thinkers whose writings dominate Western civilization. 
and have dominated Western civilization. Very much of Western civilization is built on the theological and practical categories that were made, um, that, that were riven into culture by this man. Now remember, he was a nobody in a lot of places and he was ministering to a tiny minority and yet the words that he sowed into them ultimately rose and rose and rose and like you and I fail to realize that the Christian worldview of the West has been the dominant worldview for a thousand years. And though it's been chipped away at, it has been so. It's very much being chipped away at. If you hear the language called deconstructionism that I refer to, deconstructionism is the task, is partly the task of challenging categorical truth. For example, male and female. And so this is what's happening. People are deconstructing their faith. People are deconstructing um, their history. People are deconstructing, even in the STEM studies of universities, this deconstructionism is coming in and challenging categories. Are you guys following me? Do you understand this? You say, well, Pastor, why do you do this? Because I care about, if you want to, I'm obsessed with understanding, knowing, and living the truth. And I'm obsessed with sowing truth in. I'm also very willing to challenge my own assumptions, and I have done so, and have found myself challenged. But in, in very massive numbers, young people are challenging their faith primarily because the culture has rejected the organizing categories that have held sway in the West for more than a thousand years, thousands of years. And, and this is the reality. This is why, if you want to know who the protesters are, they're mostly angry young people. And, and frankly, mostly white angry young people. And I'm not saying don't listen to them. I'm saying understand what's going on. Okay, now Paul's going for, but look, Paul's going for unity. He's not going for unity with the culture. He's going for unity in the community of faith. And Paul has, has challenged the categories himself. Specifically, the category he's challenged is Jew and Gentile. And he has maintained that by the Holy Spirit, God has reorganized humanity as one new man that transcends those barriers. Right now, you're living in a time in which uh, uh, identity is the core issue of understanding life. Everywhere you go with Christians, the message is always, it's identity, identity, identity. But in the Christian community, it's always, who am I in Christ? In the culture, it's, it's who, I, who am I in a variety of both mutable and immutable characteristics. And it's getting identity that differentiates and it's the insistence on equality within those identities. In the Christian realm, our call is for dignity, honor, and blessing in Christ, and guess what? Because we're in Christ, we want to extend that honor to all people. You want the basis for destroying racism among us? It's, our, it's the one new man in Christ. It's the being in Christ. It's the category of knowing God through Jesus Christ. But listen, it is also an exclusive category because we do say it's through Jesus that we know God. It's through Jesus that we gain our identity. And don't be mistaken, that itself is offensive to many people who say that's too exclusive. So understand what is going on. But Paul, as a prisoner, is urging the tiny little group of people that he has influence over 
to find their identity and their unity in Christ Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. And, and this is why I've noticed over the years that where rights movements go, unity comes through a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of anger and violence. But where the spirit goes, unity comes through the power of newness in Jesus and the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. But it's a troublesome time. I know you wanna come and find a refuge from these troublesome times, but you gotta find a refuge in Christ. You gotta find a refuge in Jesus. You gotta find a refuge in the Holy Spirit. You gotta find a refuge in the love of God. All right. Uh, And we have the very difficult problem that cultural expressions of Christianity have failed to extend dignity and honor to others. So that is a really big problem that gives cause for. I was uh, thinking over these things. I remember uh, it's been, I'm not gonna make it, am I? I, re- I remember it's, uh, when, I, when I first started noticing a shift, uh, it went like this. The big challenge that was made to Christians was the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, and the Salem witch trials. And so what would be said is nobody should believe in Christians because the followers of Christ did those evil things. And I remembered when it was said and I, I can remember listening to it and thinking, this is kind of, this is kind of different. Um, in those days, by the way, there was uh, revivals on almost every college campus. Uh, Christian institutions were flourishing. Uh, Christian ministries had uh, institutional expressions in orphanages, in camps, in all, all kinds of ancillary uh, institutional expressions that filled the culture. And then the moral majority hit. When the moral majority hit, it was actually an attempt to marshal that seemingly wave of um, favor into a political force. When that happened, a backlash came against Christianity that, has, that, we're, that we're dealing with today. Now that may be a little bit simplistic, but that's just an old man who's lived through it all and watched it and felt it. One of the things that's absolutely true is Christianity always fails when it acts coercively in people's lives. Whenever Christianity comes coercively at people, it creates um, a spirit that is not the spirit of Christ. And it's, and, it, and it's constantly to be repented of. And every one of us falls sway to, I can remember the things, you know, if enough Christians would just speak up, we could put it into this thing. And usually it was talking about some of the gross sins or, or pornography or even abortion. And, and, and we believe that if enough of us would just rise up, there's two things about that. Uh, one is we would be acting coercively. And, and two is... Um, Christianity is not, Christianity is supposed to be the recipient of violence, not the, the, the source of violence. From the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And when you say that next verse, the, and the violent take it by force, uh, it's a wrong expression to say that we meet violence with violence. It, it's not that. Uh, that, that second phrase probably means that that's how the violent approach us. It probably does not mean that's our approach to violence. And I, and I know the last part is spiritualized. Okay, it, it happened. I went off on things that, that, are, that, are, that are just burning inside of me. So let's go on to where we are today, all right? But grace was given to each one of us. 
Grace was given to you. You are the recipients of grace. You have received grace. And he says grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he says, therefore it says, meaning therefore the, the scriptures say. And then he pulls up a scripture that for us we go, where, where did that come from? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. One of the interpretations of that passage is that, is that Jesus conquered death and then all those who had died in Jesus were led from their captivity. And I don't think that that's untrue. I'm not sure that that's what he's speaking of here. So we, we gotta look at it. So he says, grace was given to each one of us. So now what he's talking about is how the grace was given to each one of us. How? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So now, how do you understand the ascension of Jesus? He died. He went to the grave. He rose from the grave and he ascended. Oh, by the way, it wasn't until he ascended that he actually poured out the Holy Spirit in a way that changed what God was doing in the world. That's why he said, wait until Jerusalem until you're, until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. So there was something really important about his ascension. It goes like this. What did he ascend to? He ascended to the throne of God, the right hand of the throne of God. What happens when a king ascends? He gives his power. Now, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Um, I'm gonna suggest to you that it's quite possible that in saying descended in this passage, he's not actually speaking of the same thing as we mean when we say he descended into Hades. But rather, quite possibly simply speaking of when he descended as the incarnate son of God coming to the lower regions, the earth. I didn't make this quite as clear last night as I'm gonna say it. And I'm, and I'm handing this to you because listen, this is a very difficult piece of scripture. What I'm gonna tell you out of this script, piece of scripture, I'm 100% sure is true. My interpretation of this particular piece, I have some hesitation about. And frankly, don't listen to teachers that are cocksure about everything they say. Just don't do it. Um, one of the difficulties of being in a free church is private interpretation. If you're in the high churches, then those high churches are ruled by creedal historical documents. But in the free churches, um, we, we open, read, study, and interpret the scriptures as the Spirit leads us with the full understanding that the Bible says no scripture is of private interpretation. Which is why at the end of the sermon last night, I'll, give, I'll begin to give you this here. People who have novel interpretations of scripture probably made them up. And frankly, probably haven't had an idea that hasn't been had by somebody somewhere already. There's been a very long debate about understanding the scriptures that's gone on for 2,000 years. And oh, by the way, the Jews were doing it before that. So... It's good, to, it's good to understand that you're not the end all and I'm telling you that I'm not the end all. Got it? Anybody got it? There you go. All right, this passage, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Where's that come from? And he gave gifts to men. So, okay, get the setting. Grace was giving. When was it given? When he ascended, what does that mean? The measure of Christ's gift being given to you. 
And he quotes this text. How does it, where does it come from? Psalm 68, the chariots of God are twice 10,000 upon thousands, which is um, um, sort of the same text that's being used in Revelation when it speaks of a 200 million man army. That's really the, that's really the, 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 the interpretation of this kind of an amount. Thousands upon thousands. And it's a way of saying probably you don't even know how many. It's not a finite amount. It's an unknown amount to us. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So there's Sinai in this text. You know what Sinai is, right? Where the law was given. And then the text says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And then it says, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. This text is probably talking about Moses. Hence the reference to, to Sinai. Hence the reference to ascended on high. He went up on Sinai. Hence the reference to leading a host of captives in his train. Who was he leading? The captives of Egypt that had come out of the wilderness and come out into their freedom and receiving gifts among men. What did he receive? He received the gift of Torah. And he came down among who? Among rebellious ones who made a golden calf that the Lord God may dwell there. So probably a reference to Moses. Now, what, what, what uh, Paul seems to be doing is grabbing that reference to Moses as the scriptures often tell us, Jesus is now the new Moses. But Jesus ascends on high, not on Sinai, but on high to the throne of God. And Jesus receives uh, not Torah, but he receives the, the authority to release Holy Spirit upon us all. Okay? So creating a new thing. Um, here's the interpretation. So descending and ascending. This is, this is the interaction of heaven and earth, which is what Jesus came to heal the breach between heaven and earth. And not only to heal the breach between humanity and God and humanity and humanity, but to heal the breach of heaven and earth. So Moses, after the Exodus, went up to Sinai, came down with the law. Jesus made an exodus from death and went up to the throne and came down by the Spirit. That's, what's, that's what I'm telling you is being said here. It makes sense of Grace being given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Got it? Because Paul is pressing. What's he pressing? Their unity in the Holy Spirit. But what's he about to do? He's about to manifest a diversity in their unity. Because unity in the Bible is not uniformity. Unity in the Bible is not sameness. Unity in the Bible is oneness without sameness. And this is why, and the two shall become one, male and female. Not sameness, but a oneness that is created by their difference. All right. Again, do you see the categorical imperatives of Scripture and how they find themselves at odds with the categorical imperatives of what's going on in humanity right now? See it, feel it, taste it. Jesus now fills all things that he might fill all things by the Spirit. By the way, you might have a question about leading a host of captives. Even as uh, what, what was being said was that in Moses was all the captives of Egypt. They were in Moses covenantally. So in Jesus, when he ascended to the throne, was all of us. This is why the New Testament says, and you are seated in him. Meaning, the strange language of the Bible that says, when he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. When he ascended to the throne, you ascended to the throne. And yet, he is 
if you will, there, and we are here. But he is also here in us, that he might fill all things. And this is the word of God. This is why um, a couple of passages from Ephesians, I'll have to turn back here and read them. Um, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your innermost being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's Ephesians 3. And then going back to Ephesians 1, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go back to the text. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had descended to the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So literally, Christ ascended to the throne, but in the person of the Holy Spirit, Christ himself descended that he, as it says in this text, might dwell in your hearts through faith. Which again, that passage has been seized upon and colloquialized so that people say, receive Jesus into your heart. There's, there's, a, there's a source for why that language is there. We don't often make the connections to the language. Okay, are y'all confused or are y'all with me? Okay. Um, I get accused all the time of, of uh, being not able to be understood. And my intention on this is, is that even if you don't understand, I intend to carry you higher with me until you are swallowed up in the understanding. I want you to strain like Paul did to apprehend that for which you've been apprehended. I don't, yes, there are simple understandings, but I'm telling you, Paul wasn't giving them. If, if, if any of you really want the most simple teaching, you, you'll have a hard time reading Paul. <laughs> As I have a hard time every time I open him. Now, he gave, all right, so we were at, he gave, was, uh, he, um, gave gifts to men. Now, in this case, the gifts he gave were actually people he gave as gifts. So listen, in the Holy Spirit, sometimes the gift he gives you is an enablement of the Holy Spirit. But in this, again, category of gifts, the gifts he gives are people who have an enablement. They are empowered. And so he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These were, if you will, Paul was on a mission. And in his mission, he's going to, he's going to release these gifts into the world. Um, I'll try to do this really quickly, but I was fascinated a few years ago when I read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Has anybody read that book? A couple of you. The reason I was um, fascinated was because I saw in that book that Malcolm speaks of types of people and how those types of people function inside of institutional order or relational order and how those type of people carry something different from other people. And when I was reading it, I was so struck because I said, oh man, that's an apostle. <laughs> oh, that's a prophet. There's a pastor and a teacher and oh, the, the evangelist. Like, oh, there they are. And it wasn't a one-to-one -one correlation but it was just there. And then I was fascinated a few years later to find out that Malcolm Gladwell was a cradle Christian, lapsed away from his faith, came back to his faith in, in more recent times in a probably more mature expression. But it wasn't surprising to me that these categories were brewing inside of this man's thinking. I don't know if it's conscious or not. I think it probably was not. I think it was just observational because I think that by design, God has created some people who have the perfect uh, capacity to become an apostle, but the Holy Spirit's not there. In other words, I'm not, I'm not saying to you that these gifts are just natural abilities heightened, but I am saying to you that there's a correlation between your natural design and your spiritual purpose. All right, 
He gave these for the work of ministry. For the work of ministry. And I, I talked about this, I, I, not so much with you guys, actually. Um, it says to equip the saints. Anybody who knows me knows that I have a little bit of a nuance on this word equip. Uh, this word equip here, it's a, it's a way, this word is used, this is the only time in the Bible it's used this way. Um, and, and my basic assessment of it is, this equipping is not like a football manager who gives you the equipment or even a football coach who gives you the instruction. This enablement is a, the power of, of healing your soul, healing your mind, healing your heart, healing your wounds. And so I would rather see a translation that says to restore the saints. Because what God does is restore you to your original design. What he does is restore you through faith, hope, love, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he restores you to the original plan of God that he has inside of you. For what? For the work of ministry. So these categories, and by the way, we don't know if they're exhaustive or, or finite. I sometimes, never mind. <laughs> these personages make other personages better. Uh, I sometimes speak of uh, the fact that I say there's a few charismatics and the rest of us are uh, in the train of the charismatics. In other words, when Randy Clark's around, I heal more sick people. <laughs> when Kim Moss is around, I, I prophesy more freely. You, you get this? When I drink from the well of Bill Johnson, I function apostolically with a greater level. In other words, there's some of these people that these, these are just extraordinary human beings and, and, and the rest of us are not, it's not that we're not extraordinary, but we know there's a difference. But what happens to us is, is when, they when they help us is that we now are enabled to function in the work of the ministry. Most of the ministry in the church is done by the silent saints. Long time ago, I learned if being a pastor meant I had to be all the things you needed, you were gonna go hungry, thirsty, naked. I think of our, our dear friend, Pat Archibald. Who, who said few words and did great things among us. And everyone received from the grace that was on her life. Hallelujah. She's one of the equipped saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, for us to attain the unity of faith and for us to get to the knowledge of, God, of the Son of God. He wants us to come to mature manhood. Again, categories. Even to use mature manhood as a category has become offensive. What's an Yeah. Even though we, we know Holy Scripture uses it inclusively, not exclusively. But again, the categorical imperatives make us get offended. And then we get in arguments over how we should or should not uh, uh, change the expressions of the words. And then we have the problem of inspiration of scripture versus um, work of God in culture. And we end up with more fights than we ever wanted. So let's put it this way. And to the knowledge of the son of God, to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm always tempted to say more about those things than I need to say. Um, I'm not gonna go there. All right. Um, again, I, I've called this the restoration of the saints for the uh, growing up in ministry. By the way, um, those of you who last week were under the voice of RK, you got, uh, you got a, a very good lesson in a man who has uh, a, an equipping gift that is like, here's how to do stuff. If you, wanna, if you wanna know how to talk to people in the streets, how to minister in the streets, that guy, he's the how-to guy. He will make you better at it. He's, he's got that on him. 
he came in here and he said, this is what I want you to do. How many of you will do it? I want you to do it. That's evangelistic. That's what evangelists do. Evangelists say, say here's the instruction. Let's do it right now. Raise your hand, say the prayer. Get in the kingdom. Here's some stuff you need to read. Partner up with that guy. Stop your bad habits. How am I doing? <laughs> You've all heard it before. Impediments to the ministry of the saints. Look what I'm calling it. Baby, babies, boats, and bunko. Because I still got some Baptist in me. I got to pull out some alliteration once in a while. And so you can see that we can stretch things till they, till they fit. Ephesians 4, 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's a repeat of the last verse. The mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. And then he says, so that we will no longer be children. I want you to grow up. Don't want you to be children. Don't want you to be tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the human cunning, by craftiness. And I probably should have put my highlight on deceitful schemes. So babies, boats, and bunko. What are you saying, preacher? The dangers, tolls, and snares of the Christian faith are, first of all, he don't want you to be a baby. He doesn't want you to be dependent, selfish, helpless, unable. They're, they're unable to protect themselves. Babies are by design and by necessity, egocentric. That's okay. They're babies. They can't. But he's saying you can. I, I, I used to have, have people talk to me about baby Christians all the time. And uh, it was always an excuse for people acting badly. Uh, Paul said, grow up. <laughs> You're, anybody who's received the spirit of Christ, listen, uh, in the kingdom of God, really, um, the animal species that most resemble the kingdom of God are the animal species who the babies are born and mom leaves. You're, you're able to get along already because you have what you need. Oh yeah, it's treacherous out there. But... But you don't, you don't get coddled in the cocoon for 25 years. You don't get it. Babies, boats. Uh, uh, boats are wonderful unless you don't know how to operate them. One of the reasons I don't want to live on water, near water, is because I've, I've gotten this old and I've, I, I haven't operated a boat since I was uh, like a, a teenager. And then, you know, you were indestructible and it didn't matter. You just go, speed, turns, here we go. I did, I did drive a houseboat one time, but I had like watchers all around me. So like, boats are vulnerable things. They require skill to deal with the winds and the waves. And bunko, if you don't know what bunko is, bunko is a, car, a con man. They're everywhere. They call you on the phone to get you to, um, get your student debts forgiven, even though you never had any. <laughs> I get like a thousand calls a month from people wanting to help me with my, with my student loans. <laughs> I'm like, how did I get on your list? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that somebody who had student loans gave them my name. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Babies, boats, and bunko, so that, so that there's, there's, there's con people out there. Now, let's come on a little bit more uh, closer. Let's trim the sail a little bit. Um, one of the things that the internet has done is given a lot of people voice it's both good and bad. Persuasive characters get on there and deceive people all the time. It's a couple things. Uh, first, just about living in Jesus. I see people unconverting from Christianity and I've decided to start paying attention to their testimonies. Usually it's a testimony of their deconstruction. When I watch it, there's a few themes 
that are pervasive. One of the things that's pervasive is human suffering and the fact that it hasn't stopped makes it hard for them to believe in God. When I see that, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm like, you didn't know about human suffering when, did you just discover human suffering? You know, I'm always fascinated by it. And usually what it means is in some stark way, human suffering was put right in front of them. And how can a good God? Now, then they go, I lost my faith. The first thing I know is, I, I know is whatever their faith was, it's not the faith I'm preaching. So when Jesus came into my life, he came in with such a stunning force. Then these problems were presented to me. And here's how I've always approached these problems that I don't have all the answers to. The force of the problems has never superseded the force of his effect on my soul. In other words, he saved me with such a, a resting force. that I look at the problem and the force of the problem is not greater than his work in me. Yeah. And so I often say, did you get your faith from looking at the world or did you get your faith from the experience of Jesus Christ? Because you see, my faith was never rooted on those things. Now, it was rooted in evil. But here's what I came to understand. The reason Jesus came into the world was to deal with the problem of evil. I'll even go further. One of the realities about the disruption that's going on right now in our own country is I would say the hand of God is on it. Dealing in righteous judgment. Because righteous judgment, all, uh, set, listen, setting things right always involves righteous judgment. Have you ever been a parent? If you've been a parent, you've exercised a judgment over those that you're parenting. For what? Redemptive purposes. Jesus is what God has done about the problems of the world. And yes, the world is going to shake while the judgments of God are being worked out in history. And he's very patient. And the Bible is very clear on that. And sometimes you and I cannot see a one-for-one -one correlation between the judgment that's out there and the problem that's being remedied. Guess what? Your children couldn't see it when you disciplined them either. But when they grew up into mature adulthood, they looked back and said, oh, it was good that my parents bounded me. It was grievous at the moment, but necessary. So that's one of the things. And that's just one of the things of maturity. Um, I could go on and on about this. I, I, I want to, but I won't. But Paul is very concerned. He's sowing Christ into their hearts. They're receiving him. But the problems are everywhere. And he says to them, now don't be tossed about. Don't be deceived. And don't be just like children. Reach out for help. Call upon people who have greater understandings than yourself. Live with the anomalous realities that no one can answer every question. But I'm going to say it again. Jesus Christ is what God the Father has done about the chaos of the world. You do realize that the only way for God to put an end to all the pain in the world is by coercively acting in history to force 
everyone and everything to do the right thing. And he didn't do that. He chose instead to show up in the misery of the world and to become the lowest of the low and to be tortured and killed and by that strange means to deal with evil in the world. And then to work out redemption and reconciliation through the slow processes of history. I'm a person who believes history is going somewhere. I actually am a progressive in the sense that I believe it's progressing toward the full manifestation of the kingdom of God, to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ, that he fills all things. All right, I'm gonna land. Rather, he says, he says, he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's your project for the week. Ready? Tell the truth. First and most to yourselves. Tell the truth. Secondly, about yourselves. Which is to say, instead of shaping every narrative to make yourself look the best you can look, just tell the truth. Because none of us, none of us is as lovely as we want to think. Tell the truth. And then speak the truth to one another in love so that we can grow up into the head, which is Christ. Amen? To be continued next week as we will, as we will, we're gonna do something. We're gonna, next week we're gonna begin to talk about how in a practical way, the apostle is shaping his audience. His audience are Gentiles. <laughs> uh, one of the good things about what's going on recently is the ability to re-see the stories that are in the Bible. You read the story of the Bible and you say, who am I? We who are Christians read the story of the Bible and we tend to see ourselves as, um, as the host at the table instead of the guest. Because in, in the world, Gentiles have become the majority audience, certainly vastly over Jews, right? But know this, Paul was speaking to a Gentile audience and they were the guest. The host had been the Jewish family. And he's inviting, he's inviting the Gentiles to, to come to table. In other words, he's inviting the Gentiles to reshape their lives. And it's a hard thing. I think that we're at a time where we're being challenged to reshape our lives again. And it will help us to not be so um, what's called ethnocentric, making everything conform to us, but rather to realize we're the guest. We're the guest. And so next week, when I begin to unpack some of the ways that Paul started giving moral instruction to the Gentiles, it's interesting, and it'll be fun working it out. Because we're gonna look at how, what Paul has to say about telling the truth and about relationships. So here we go. Let's come to the table. Are you ready? If you don't have the Lord's Supper elements, would you raise your hand? We'll bring them to you. We're gonna receive. You can tell, you can tell when I've been away from the pulpit because then I go too long. Forgive me.
I bring myself to remember the true host, the true host of the table is Jesus. He's the one that invites us to table. He's the one that is the bread of life. He's the one that we are to receive. He's the one that we are invited to come to him. He invites us. We are his. Lord, I want to thank you that you bore in your body our sins on the tree and all of our infirmities. And we are healed by receiving you. And we give thanks. Amen. Can you stand? If you can stand, can you stand? I want you, as you come to the cup, I want you to be fully in receiving mode. And I want to invite you to lean into your heart, lean into the presence of Jesus and to once again receive the outpouring of his spirit from the throne and ask him to reshape us into his image. Lord, I want to thank you for this cup, your life, your blood, shed, released, given, and now received. The blood of Christ is shed for us. Amen.